it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. It's Brian Kilmeade. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. Bad news. We asked Douglas Murray to come on the show thinking he'd say no, and he <laughs> stuck around and he said yes. I apologize to the audience. Uh, only kidding. And of course, and Rich Lowry, National Review at the bottom of the hour. Uh, before we go any further, there's so much to discuss. Now that we're back in action on this Wednesday, getting close to Memorial Day, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. The reality is we have 22 district police stations, and combined we have over 900 migrants living in them full-time. And at nighttime, there's almost no space for anybody to come in and walk in and do a report. There's Spread. literally not a square inch of open space. Is this nuts? That's a Chicago police chief talking about what it's like at Chicago police stations. Spreading the stress and pain. New York governors decide and Chicago governors decide to force counties to take migrants as New York City is virtually full at 45,000. The problem? Suffolk, Rockland, and Monroe say no. And they'll sue to make sure they don't get them. And in Chicago, they say, we're not even asking. We're just going to stick them in police stations. All because of a Democratic-created disaster at the border. Number two. We have very good discussions. Um, we know where each, each other are currently located. We know there's a will to try to find a way. So, And people have to look at different angles. Eight days until we default on our debt. Nonstop talks seem to be stalled. We will follow every moment as Dems have come to the realization that not cutting spending while raising the debt ceiling will not cut it. Number one. But is it worth the fight? Do I have the courage? Is it worth the sacrifice? America has been worth it every single time. And with it, finally it's happened. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will declare in a matter of hours he's running for president. What it means for the field and the unprecedented way in which he's announcing it is raising eyebrows. It's on Twitter Square. What's it called? Twitter Twitter Spaces. Uh, with me right now is Douglas Murray. Douglas, welcome. All right, good to be with you. So I didn't even know what Twitter Spaces was. Anyway, and now it turns out like, on Twitter Spaces, not nearly as popular as Twitter, mm-hmm. and it's going to be just audio. Is it, it, if that is, in fact, true, it's weird. Um, it's slightly unconventional. I'm not sure it's weird. I mean, it makes a great deal of sense because, among other things, DeSantis needs to show he's different from the other. But what about, what about video? Well, that would be good. But on the other hand, he's got the plus of Elon Musk. Uh, who's interviewing him. Who's interviewing him. So that that's a that feels to me like a pretty strong launch, I have to say. Uh, DeSantis plus Musk. Um, Elon Musk, not just the world's richest man, but probably the world's most talked about man these days. I think that's a pretty clever way to not just double the impact of your launch, but square it. Right. I am the second most talked about uh, person, well, I, would you I, say? I, I'd take that as red, really. Really? Okay, good. Um, so he's going to interview him on Twitter, and then he's going to go on Trey Gowdy at 8, yeah. uh, say 8 o'clock Eastern time. But I think it's important, too. Number one, Trump's not on Twitter, mm-hmm. famously. Yeah. And he made Twitter famous. He mm-hmm. helped make Twitter what it is today. And number two is I think it helps Twitter because Twitter's mm-hmm. trying to say you can count on me on Election Day. 
You can count them in this election season. And I told you what happened when I didn't own it. Those other guys, how can you trust Facebook and Instagram and everything else? Because the same people are in charge. Trust Twitter. Yeah, I, that, that's the thing. I think it's a clever multiplier for both Twitter and DeSantis. I really do. I think it's, it gives off this impression. This is the place you can talk freely. This is a place you're not going to be boycotted. This is a place you're not going to be no platform to de-platform, demonetized. All of those tricks that the other social media platforms have, have used and that Twitter has used in the past. I think it's a strong message from, from Elon Musk owned Twitter that this is the place to be, you know, that if, if the whole point of Musk taking over Twitter was to make sure that the town square, the effective virtual town square was better policed, more hygienic than it used to be and a freer place. This is a pretty good way to signal those things. David Sachs will be the moderator, so it'll be three three of them on together. Uh, they'll talk about everything. And, you know, we made it clear, uh, Elon Musk says, I'm voting Republican. I just don't know who it's going to be, and I'm impressed with Ron DeSantis. Mm-hmm. He also was impressed with Tim Scott. I thought Tim Scott yep. had a great role. I thought I loved his speech. Yeah, it's very good, very strong. It comes from the heart. It's a mm-hmm. legitimate message. Yeah, I think, I mean, this goes back to something you and I have said before, is that actually if, if you look at the 2024 race, the Republicans have a very good bench. You know, uh, people will favor certain candidates over others, but the bench is strong. Can anyone actually say that about the Democrats? No. You know, you go down from Biden, again, whatever you think of him, but you go down from Biden, what is there? I mean, what is there beneath him? I mean, uh, uh, Kamala Harris, uh, uh, um, the governor of California, you know, where's the talent in the Democrat Party? I, I, I think that in all of this, you know, the Republican Party can be pretty proud of the people who've already come out. So what's so interesting is that, you know, they always attack Trump. I'm used to that. You're used to that. But the way people go out to Santis, it's hmm. astounding. You know, it's almost as if you sit in a cell. Like, Why is everyone there at that guy? Yeah. Like, I, I, did you see the DNC spokesperson, uh, Amir Musa, said this. Launching a campaign for the dozens of people on Twitter spaces is curious, even for the world's most online candidate. But but what's even more curious is how DeSantis thinks his MAGA agenda, ripping freedoms from Floridians, banning abortion before many women know they're pregnant, making it easier for criminals to carry guns or any other extreme planks will resonate with the American people when voters have rejected the MAGA agenda over and over. Wow, that's an interesting little attack. You didn't do well, that for Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, Issa Hutchinson. Let me... Um... Let me up you. Let me try to cap that example. Vanity Fair. Remember that? Sure. Uh, Vanity Fair magazine overnight. The headline. Report. Ron DeSantis will formally announce his 2024 bid with Elon Musk because apparently David Duke wasn't available. Wow. Headline in Vanity Fair. They go on to describe, to say, well, no, these are all white supremacists. Sorry. You know, Vanity Fair says Ron DeSantis... David Duke, same thing. Grand Wizard of the KKK, Ron DeSantis. These people are going to stop at nothing. As you say, they have, they've been doing this against Trump, and they're going to do the same playbook against anyone who looks strong on the Republican side. The good thing about it is that we all know from the Trump era that a lot of Americans were inoculated to this. Right. And why would Vanity Fair, if I held the purse strings, why would they, even if I was the most leftist man on the planet, why would they ever think that's good for business? I'll tell because you why. They're, they're trying to tell me don't go there if you're a Republican to get any type of perspective. First of all, because failing entities like Vanity Fair are run by kids. I mean, that will have been written by a 22-year-old intern, that headline. Aren't editors? Uh, no, no, no. These, these, things, these things are the epitome of some of the, some of the, the dying parts of the media. 
uh, their failed business models. They believe that their only way back is to do hysterical nonsense like this and to whip up their remaining base into some kind of lather of fury by pretending that every single Republican nominee, every single Republican candidate is some kind of KKK leader, including the black ones, obviously. Right, Tim Scott, which brings me to, I was trying to say, I didn't see anything negative on Tim Scott. I was waiting for the attacks to start because they went after Ben Carson right away. The brain surgeon who was raised by a single parent who Mm. was illiterate, cleaning houses, working to... So that somehow they found a problem with that story. Mm-hmm. Here's the view. Cut eight. One of the issues that Tim Scott um, has is that he seems to think because I made it, everyone can make it. Ignoring, again, the fact that he is the exception and not the rule. And until he is I, the rule, he has, then he can stop talking about systemic racism. Clarence Thomas syndrome. But I do think... That's a new one. Clarence Thomas syndrome is... Um, when a black American does well and has the wrong views. I mean, mean, that's what Joy Behar and co. mean by that. Uh, They think that Scott has kind of let them down. This is is the classic leftist view that has been breaking apart in recent years before our eyes. It has been breaking apart. It hurts the country. It hurts the country so badly when you get these white women like Joy Behar pretending that Anyone who's black has to share their politics. And if they don't, they're somehow not really black and things like this. This is horrible for America. And I hope people notice that, again, the diversity, the strength, the impressiveness of the, of the, of the Republican candidates speaks to a genuinely diverse field. What have the Democrat Party got to speak to by comparison? Identity politics endlessly. You know, it'll all be about first woman to do this, first transgender person to do that. And I I hope that a lot of Americans are just tired of that. Uh, Douglas Murray here. And, you know, he wrote The War on the West. He did a TV special on it on Fox Nation, Fox News contributor, National Review Institute fellow. Uh, So that was one way to view it. Keep in mind, if you do want to talk historically, people should know that Lincoln was a Republican Mm -hmm. and that if you got the Jim Crow separate but equal, if you want to know what that's about, that is called Democrats. Mm -hmm. And that's what they ran on for the longest time. Now, if we were sitting here saying all Democrats want Jim Crow separate but equal and keep Rosa Parks in the back of the bus, I would think that's wrong, too. But why are you somehow reversing things and changing history and say Republicans are the face of white supremacy? They gave us the Democrats gave us the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, they, they, they just they'll do anything. You know, you know that we all know that by now. The Democrats will do anything like the leftist media will do anything to destroy people in their way. And, and, and by the way, as you referred to with, with Ben Carson, that includes taking out any minority candidate in particular. Because they, they see them as a genuine threat. And maybe they're right. I want to talk about the debt ceiling and what's going back and forth. Because already this is a win for Kevin McCarthy and Republicans. Yeah, I think so. Because right away, uh, and I'll just leave you with this. We'll take a break so I have some other time on the back end. But just keep in mind, too, that Joe Biden says, I will not do anything deal with the debt. I only want to clean uh, the debt ceiling to raise cleanly. And then I'll talk about the budget later. He's already caved on that because he had to. And by the way, waited way too long to start this, and it hurt his own foreign policy. Back in a moment, Brian Kilmeade Show, Wednesday. 
Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Welcome back, everybody. We got Douglas Martin here for a few more minutes. So, Douglas, uh, January 1st, ostensibly, the, we hit the debt ceiling. And we've noticed back and forth, Kevin McCarthy trying to speak positively about it, but not much progress being made. Repurposing pandemic money, pretty much agree. It's kind of easy, to mm-hmm. be honest. So then you have a situation where... Other cuts for the 87,000 IRS agents that they will consider that a problem. Where else do you see that they're going to be compromise on on money and on taxes and on cuts? Well, truth is, wherever they compromise, this looks very good for McCarthy and the Republicans in, in, in Congress and Senate. They are in the, they are in the position of dictating the weather effectively. Uh, the, the the story is all about the debt ceiling, and that favors the Republicans. And it fa- fa- favors. The, the Republican view on the debt in general, which is you just can't keep blasting through these ceilings. You just can't. America can't. And it has to, and the Biden administration believes that you can keep putting this off. I don't think you can. Republicans don't think you can. So we're talking about the debt. And whatever the compromise is, the most important thing is that that central issue that the story is the debt, that's terrible for Biden. It's terrible for the Democrats. You know, to be talking about your strong, your, 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 your weakest issue, it's not a bad thing. And he's got 32% approval rating when it comes to the economy, 38% overall, so it's underlining it. You could say all you want mm-hmm. about how you think your economy's better, but people don't feel it because no. inflation uh, first and foremost. But bring it to another area. He keeps saying he cut the deficit, mm-hmm. and everybody knows that's folly. Uh-huh. He cut the deficit. They grew to six point all this trillions of dollars because we shut the country down exactly. for <laughs> almost a year and just threw money at it. Then you came in through more money that we didn't need because mm-hmm. we were coming out of it. And then you pass this all these other bills. And then you go, oh, I cut the deficit. Well, compared when we were just writing checks yeah. and told people not to work. I, I, I think that most voters know that when the Democrats compare things to 2020, you're comparing I to the year so. that the world shut down. So when Biden's like, we've done really well since 2020, you get, yeah, from going at naught miles an hour, you've you, managed to go a, a, a few, you know, a few kilometers faster. Here's the Democratic uh, argument. Adam Smith of Washington was on with Neil yesterday, cut 22. Look, I think we're in real trouble here, more trouble than most people realize. Because the one thing to keep in mind is for all the Republicans talk about having a plan, they have yet to specifically identify anything that they would cut. Now, the plan that they passed has a generic, I think they freeze it at FY22 levels. They freeze the discretionary portion of the budget. So they don't even touch anything within the mandatory portion of the budget, which is, gosh, like $4.5 trillion. So we're down to 1.7. That was one thing they did do. You know, they didn't say, okay, we're going to cut benefits from uh, veterans or anything like that. They they know exactly what they want to cut, though. Yeah, it seems to me. And again, we're in good territory for the Republicans here, which is what are we going to cut? 
something needs to give. And by the way, among the candidates for the, the Republican nomination for president are people who are very clear, including Vivek Ramaswamy, who was in this studio the other week with me and, and, and you, uh, who said whole departments that they would cut if they got in. So, so this, is, this is perfectly comfortable territory for Republicans. It isn't for the Democrats, because the Democrats will have to explain how they think that this country can keep spending and spending and spending. And so when they do get a deal, you know the right wing of the Republican Party is going to say whatever it is is not going to be enough, but are they yeah. going to keep their powder dry? And here's the left wing, cut 24. I think there would be a huge backlash from our entire uh, House Democratic, you know, caucus, certainly the progressives, but also in the streets. You know, I mean, I think that this is it's important that we don't take steps back from the very strong agenda that the president himself shepherded and led over the last two years. So there's going to be only if you pay them to go in the streets the way you paid them to protest Danny Penny after the subway uh, at the subway death. Uh, and the choking situation, but that's Pamela Jayapal, mm-hmm. and that's what she's saying. So she's I, saying, watch it, Joe. Yeah, I was really struck when I saw those comments yesterday. Uh, she is basically saying, watch out because we've got a mob. Well, I don't know about you. I don't like the sound of that kind of political rhetoric. I'm threatening you. I said, I'm threatening you. It's like um, – Nice city you've got there. Shame if anything happened to it. Yeah. You know, I'm sorry this is an old mob tactic, and it, it has no place in truly democratic politics. Unfortunately, it does in the current Democrat Party. That's a shame. Um, yeah, we'll see what happens, how this plays out. But over these next eight days, people forget, and Senator Langford reminded me of it, and I went back and looked it up. Do you know that Donald Trump did raise the debt ceiling? Yeah. But he actually paid the price. Nancy Pelosi had him up spending. Yeah. And then put on hold unpopular Obama tax increases for Obamacare. So both times it wasn't just I raised it. He had to deal with Democratic Senate and a Democratic House. Yeah. And here's the thing uh, uh, in relation to Trump's raising the deficit, uh, uh, the debt ceiling. In each case, there is this central issue which only the right in America is willing to address. The left simply isn't, which is, okay, uh, once in a generation things happen, sure. Once in a generation, things are happening several times a year at the moment. So are you, is this your answer every time? I mean, again, most, most countries in the world, when they shut down in 2020, ended up taking on levels of debt never seen in peacetime. Yep. So you might do that for a once-in-a-generation conflict. Again, these once-in-a-generation events keep on happening. Every year at the moment, I know. and only the only the Republicans are willing to contend with that. The Democrats are willing to say, "Oh well, it just happens more and more often. We'll just have to keep uh, keep borrowing." Uh, I, I think that the Republicans are in a strong position here. I noticed too. China's got another variant about to hit China, which I'm not upset about, but it will affect the world for sure. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. They call it faith because in the face of darkness, you can see that brighter future. A faith that our best days lay ahead of us. But is it worth the fight? Do I have the courage? Is it worth the sacrifice? America has been worth it every single time. 
So I, I think this answers a few questions for Ron DeSantis. Here he is, the most popular uh, Republican or never top three most popular Republicans in the country. Even his enemies say this guy is formidable after a substantial midterm win. And he's been taking nonstop hits ever since, whether it's Disney, but mostly from the Trump team. Is it worth it? That's where I think that ad works. But Rich Lowry is an established pro who's seen so many campaigns, um, I can't even begin to count them. He's editor of Nash Review, uh, best-selling author. Rich, welcome back. Hey, I always feel so old when you introduce me, Brian. Uh, I apologize. <laughs> I, I'll never say how. I'll never cite your experience again. Uh, all right. So first off, I, I like the ad. Uh, people should know visually that he is in a back shadow, and it shows he's getting clearly him, and he's behind the stage, and he gradually walks on stage as if I'm ready to go tonight mm-hmm. at six on Twitter, and then at eight with Trey Gowdy. Yeah, I think it's a little weird not to do – why not do the big event You know, that can get chopped up into video and local networks will, will cover and then do Musk and, and Gowdy. You know, there'll still be equal interest in, in Musk because you know, he's such a loose cannon and it's such a kind of a new, new thing to do. But uh, for whatever reason, they're, they're just doing the, the Twitter and, and the Gowdy, and there will be a lot of interest in it. I, I just don't know why you um, – don't build the massive crowd and have the flag, flag bedecked stage and, and do the traditional and and the innovative and kind of get the the best of both. Um, but but here we go. So one of the people that is making a difference that got people looking twice in the Trump camp is Hal Lambert. He's with Point Fridge Capital, a founder and a mega donor for Trump in the past, and he is just not on board with Trump now. Uh, here's what he said is the reason why I cut nine. What made you go for the governor? Well, there's a number of reasons. I mean, I think the governor actually just said it. I mean, one, Donald Trump can only serve one term. Uh, He'll effectively be a lame duck uh, almost on day one if he were to win. Uh, But I don't think he can win the general. That's that's the number two reason. I don't think he can win the general. Uh, There's states that matter, and uh, we all know what those are. It's going to be things like Nevada and Arizona and Virginia, uh, Wisconsin. Uh, I, I don't see Trump winning any of those states, and so we can't win uh, if we don't win those states. And, and so also, I think Governor DeSantis has just done an amazing job as governor. He also has to name Arizona and Pennsylvania. So is this, that's the conventional wisdom where people say, I like Trump, but I don't think he can win. Does Rich Lowry feel the same way? I think Trump can win. I just think he's the riskier choice. And then is the riskier choice in terms of governance as as well. But I think both of those messages, they, they might work with donors, they might work with activists, and that's important. But you need something that's more emotive, that's more about you and, and how your personal narrative fits into a, a bigger political message and the, the way you, direction you want to take the country in. That's what's going to move people rather than the electability message. So I think it's, it would be a mistake for for DeSantis to lean too much on that case. And then there's also, you, you get this, you know, this became an issue for Marco Rubio and others in 16. If you're saying I'm the one that can be elected and you're losing to the guy you say can't be elected by 50 points, that doesn't work. <laughs> so I, I, I think it has to be part of his appeal, but it can't be the entirety of it. How do you feel about the six-week uh, abortion limit? How do you feel about the Disney fight? Does that help him in the nomination process? I think that the Disney fight, you know, it would have been better to kind of, you know, wrap wrap Disney on the nose with the rolled up newspaper. And then when the year was done, um, say we're, we're, we're actually, you know, we're going to they, they've backed off. They have a new CEO. We're going to give them the district back and, and just just move on. That that would have been the play for me. Uh, but but he went further than that. And now it's, you know, it's going to be a, a legal fight for years. I think it probably helps them in the primary because the temptation and we've seen this from other candidates is to side, basically side with Disney, either just 
to score points off DeSantis or, you know, out of principle and saying it's a private company. Um, and so it'll allow him to position himself as the fiercest warrior against woke corporations. General, you know, m- might not be so helpful. Six-week ban, I think it's way exaggerated that, you know, you have the press saying this basically means Ron DeSantis can't be elected. If he, if he were in favor of a six-week ban at the federal level, yeah, that would be an enormous problem. But I think you can say uh, he'll probably favor some sort of federal legislation, but it'd be more like 15 weeks. That's quite popular in the polling. And then say, you know, if states want to go further, uh, they can do it. But people also forget, you know, Biden favors this radical uh, federal statute that, that Democrats offered that would wipe away every restriction on abortion in every state in the union. That, that's that's radical and a political vulnerability, too. So, yes, DeSantis is going to have to work to defend this. Absolutely. Uh, but but it's not as though it makes him unelectable the way we're hearing from some media types. Rich Larry, my guest. So, Rich, uh, the biggest, I think, thing will hurt the president are these court cases. So yesterday he found out that he's got to be in court in March, right in between two Florida primary and another primary for the Stormy Daniels situation was told not to talk about it. Then you have his Trump organization be investigated by a politically minded attorney general, even though those both idiotic cases, they're still noteworthy and opponents might find that ripe for the picking at their own peril. But then I look at what's happening with Jack Smith and the Mar-a-Lago situation Trump lawyers are serious enough to write a letter to ask for a meeting with the Attorney General Merrick Garland, says he's being unfairly targeted as a former president. So he wrote a letter before Jack Smith's probably indictment. How serious does this make you think they are taking this? Well, uh, everyone says, including our colleague Andy McCarthy, that you know, the Jack Smith one—that's that's the real serious one. And. Um, I, that seems right to me. I just think most Republican voters, it, it's all a haze. They think it's all uh, political for, for understandable reasons. You know, Jack Smith might be a serious guy and, and might actually, you know, have him on obstruction. But why are you going to go after Trump when you didn't go after Hillary and you're not going to go after Biden? That's the question all Republicans, uh, Republicans are going to ask. So this was the, you know, the Bragg indictment was clearly the inflection point in the first six months of this year. Trump, Trump would, would occasionally hit 50 in some polls. After that, he was routinely above. 50 in national polls and has been hitting 60 uh, lately. So I'm not sure it hurts him to have to show up in in court, you know, in in March. Might even help him. Now there's a chance just Republican voters will conclude, at least some of them, that you know there's too much, there's too much baggage. Even if we think he's being treated unfairly, this will not play in a general, make it even harder for him to to uh, get elected. I think there's a chance of that, but I'm, if I'm betting, man, I think it's it's either all discounted or it continues to help Trump. So I, I'm looking at with, uh, your column in the border. And it's so right. You said for the longest time, people wanted to Republicans saying, look at the border. It's a mess. We're trying to fix it and they won't let us. The people understand how it affects us and building the wall and having press conference didn't work. But getting taking the illegal immigrants and sending them to the sanctuary cities, even though the president tried to make them unconstitutional, the former president didn't work. But now sending them into Chicago and to New York and to Philadelphia and into Denver is sending the type of message that the Republicans wanted to send. This is unsustainable, it's un-American, and it's hurt working-class Americans, correct? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the position of these mayors apparently is that we should have two or three million illegal immigrants come in in the last two years, whatever it is, and they should all stay in El Paso. That's fair. 
then that's obviously ridiculous. This is a national problem. There's no reason they all should stay in border states. They're not going to stay in the border states all of them anyway. Eventually, they'd make their way elsewhere under their own power. And they're being asked, where do you want to go? Do you want to go to Chicago? Yeah, I want to go to Chicago. Well, here's a bus ticket. So that's not inhumane or wrong on the face of it. And it's just making these mayors face the fact that that these – Caring for this, these migrants is a burden. It's costly. So, despite all the gauzy rhetoric about how uh, um, you know they, they, they're huge contributors and we need them to to reduce the, the deficit and pay for entitlements over time, none of that's true. It's it's extremely costly. That the housing, the education, the medical services, and you know, Chicago example. I think they've had six six thousand show up since last August. Six thousand in a city of two point six million, and they they declared it. A state of national, uh, a state emergency, or city citywide. They put him in police emergency. stations. Yeah, and 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 you know, and then in Southside Chicago, you don't often hear people say "build the wall." They had a community meeting about using a former high school to house these these people in the middle of the neighborhood, and they all showed up and said no. Close the border, build the wall. This this is not right. You know we have other problems in our community that haven't been dealt with. Why are you adding to our problems? And that's a commonsensical sentiment. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's pretty overwhelming. Forty thousand plus. Now they're going to send them to three counties, four counties in New York. These counties are all not sanctuary counties, and they're not even yep. getting their permission. So it's causing huge backlash. And if you want to win back New York. That was beginning to show a few co- the congressional seats that went the Republicans' way. This is not the way to do it. Yeah, I mean it's it's almost as though they're going to be passed all the way up to to the Canadian border because they're you know they're a burden in the the border states. They're asked where they want to go. They go to New York City. They're a burden in New York City, so New York City wants to pass them along. The answer obviously is to to shut the border uh, effectively. And you know the the end of Title 42 has not resulted since it ended, and the surge, uh, daily surge that some of us had expected, but still might be on its way. Um, and the the numbers even even uh, now are still totally unsustainable and would have been uh, considered a, a massive crisis a couple of years ago. So just Biden is is the problem here. I give Eric Adams credit for at least saying that. And uh, but but he he's he has no interest in stopping it. Rachel Lowry, thanks so much. Appreciate it. All you right, are not old, friend. just All experienced right, for the record. <laughs> All right, coming up next, uh, Opera, the uh, founder of. Project New Uniform, uh, how to get our military men and women when they're done, uh, when they're done serving jobs that they can be proud of. Michelle McMenamin will be in studio uh, located over in Ponte Vedra, uh, Florida. You're going to love to hear about this program just days before Memorial Day. Don't move. Brian Kilmeade Show. Learning something new every day on the Brian Kilmeade Show. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, everybody. As you know, Memorial Day a couple of days away. Most of you, especially the patriotic listeners that we have on the Brian Kilmeade Show, know that and know it's not just about cookouts and there's nothing wrong with having them. Michelle McMenamin knows all about that. She's the founder of Operation New Uniform, and you could follow her on onuvets.org. And, uh, Michelle, welcome. Great to see you again. Thanks, Brian. It's great seeing you, too, since uh, December. Right. And that's when I had a chance to, to be at your event. Yes, you And speak were. with uh, Colonel Allen West. Yes. Uh, and so it was great to hang out with him. So Operation Uniform is, is a way and a program that helps vets 
when they take off the uniform, get an occupation, it's going to be rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, look at some of our veterans that come out of the military and they really don't have any idea of what they want to do. And, you know, we joke around and say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And it's okay not to know. Mm -hmm. But we help them figure out what that passion is. What do they want to be? What do they want to do? Because now they get a choice because in the military they didn't. So in the Jacksonville area, you have a military – it's a huge military community too. And you got the military – you got the uh, naval base there too. Yes, correct. Mayport. Yes. So no one has to – it's very hard to go someplace and not see someone that's serving, whether they're hanging out in a restaurant or a bar or a gym. That's correct. So what turned you on to this need and what made you take action? So my husband and I have a sales training company called Sandler Training, and we wanted to scholar a veteran through our program. And that one veteran that came through, and so you got to think of Sandler Training as a uh, reinforcement program. It's a year long. After about six months of this veteran come through our program, we said, what do you want to do with your life, Justin? You're smart. You know, you can do anything. What do you want to do? We'll introduce you to anybody in town. And he said, you know, I want to teach every veteran I know what you guys have taught me, and I don't want them to pay for it. So it kind of changed our thoughts on how is this going to look? I mean, what does it look like for veterans to understand how to not sell a product or service, but to sell themselves, to be able to communicate with a business owner on what they do and what they want to be and how they can help a company? So that was what year did you launch Oh, gosh, that was almost nine years ago. And how did it start? So it started with that one veteran, and then I called uh, Dave Matson, who owns Sandler Training. I said, would you donate your copyright material that you pay? People pay a lot of money to go through this program. I said, you know, would you donate it, and we'll massage it and make it into this program for veterans. And he said, Michelle, anything you need, whatever you need, we want to do with this. We want to help because nobody is doing this. So that's how it got started. We started with one veteran. It turned into now over 450 that we have served in a classroom style. We have a location, Boots on the Ground in Tampa, Jacksonville, but you can come in anywhere in the nation because we have a hybrid situation, and then we also have a self-paced program. But you had to get funds and do some fundraisers. Talk yes. about the fundraisers, how that... So, yeah, we have three great fundraisers every year. One is a uh, clay shoot, which you haven't been down to yet, but it's, that's a blast, and the pun is intended. Yeah. We have a golf tournament that's coming up in October, and then we have another gala that I would love for you to come to December 2nd at the Sawgrass Marriott Ponte Vedra. So, and that's what, that's what uh, I was at, and that was just uh, packed with people. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we had Lieutenant Colonel Allen West there. We had you there. I mean, come on. It doesn't get any better than that. I don't think it can be. It can't <laughs> possibly be better. I hate that you peaked in 2022. That's a bad thing for you. So, and the response was great. The money was raised. So how many people, how many uh, men and women are you looking to help this time? As this many year? as we possibly can. I mean, we served over 15,000 with our wraparound services. Now we're looking to really expand you know, our reach. And the only way we can do that is really looking at our fundraising opportunities. And we have little ways of doing it, $10 a month or more through our loyalty brigade. Just go to our website at onuvets.org or um, just reach out to us. We'd love to be able to connect. And the diversity you. of occupations that show up, that also could be contact. So you come out, you're not really sure what you want to do. You learn to sell yourself. Well, what exactly do you want to do? And that's also your network of business people and help out those men and women coming out of the uniform. That's right. So not only uh, for our service men and women and their spouses, we started serving spouses last year, but not only um, are they the ones that we really want to touch and be able to help to reach out to us, but those businesses that want to hire them, uh, that's incredible. We would love to touch every single one of them, reach out to them, um, have them reach out to us how we can get them to hire great veterans and their spouses. And we're not in the middle of a hot war now. It doesn't mean there's not a ton of veterans coming out. That's right. And they got to need some help. You know, it was also located there, Wounded Warriors are yes. up there. So that's a big help. So 
Does it astound you on a daily basis that there's not that transition program within the military? Hey, you're getting out in six months. I need you to go to this class. I need you to go to this class. Almost as if the same thing you go through with high school and college. What do you want to do now that you're getting into high? What do you want to major in? Right. Does it astound you that we don't have that? So, Brian, you know, it's a great question. I think the military is doing the best they can, and they're offering certain programs to be able to do some things. Uh, Their TAP program, um, they give them the information that they need so they at least have an understanding of what's out there. The problem is it's so overwhelming while they're there. And then they don't know. A lot of them don't know about us, and, you know, we're trying to get that word out to be able to let them know there are other resources out there. Wounded Warrior Project is a great example. Um, and we collaborate with every other veteran service organization out there so they get all the services they need. Right. And when you hire a military person, what fundamentally, even though everybody's different, obviously, different branches, different – what do you get? An extremely qualified, um, eager, determined, hardworking individual that's going to be there for the long haul. They're not looking to change careers in a couple of months or a couple of years. They want to be there as their second home. They're used to that. They love the idea of their family working together in that network. What is your biggest discovery having done this now for, you said, nine years? Mm-hmm. What did what did you realize once you started doing this that you didn't? I, I thought, um, what a shame. You know, to your point, we don't have a lot of resources, more resources like this for our military members. And that if we could just get them to understand how to network and really make those connections, talk to everybody. They don't, they don't know how to ask for help. I want them to be able to come out and No, it's okay. Ask people for help because we do truly want to help them. And if you want to help recruiting, tell people the outcome, the possibilities on the outcome, and then that would definitely help all branches of government. Michelle, thanks so much. Operation New Uniform. Thank you. Great. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Uh, 1-866-408-7669. Of course, come to you from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. Heard around the country, around the world. Uh, With us in a matter of moments, Michael Goodwin. Bottom of the hour, Lindsay Barra, the granddaughter of Yogi Barra. It's hard to imagine a uh, uh, talking baseball this time of year, leading up to the All-Star Game in about a month the season a third of the way and not uh, talking about the Yankee legend. She's got a great bi- uh, biography. She's afraid that people have forgotten uh, Yogi Berra. I don't think that's possible. Everybody knows who that is, but to put his career in perspective is great. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's big three. Number three. The reality is we have 22 district police stations and combined, we have over 900 migrants living in them full-time. And at nighttime, there's almost no space for anybody to come in and walk in and do a report. There's literally not a square inch of open space. Uh, that is police chief in Chicago talking about illegal immigrants who have been put into police stations. What? what uh, that is so ridiculous. This is spreading the stress and pain to all those sanctuary cities and all those sanctuary states like New York and like uh, Pennsylvania and like Philadelphia. But in New York, there are counties that don't do this. New York City does this, and they're trying to send them to Suffolk County, Rockland, and Monroe. The problem? They don't want them. Number two. We have very good discussions. Um, We know where each each other are currently located. We know there's a will to try to find a way. So, And people have to look at different angles. 
That is true. Kevin McCarthy, eight days until we default on our debts and nonstop talks seem to be stalled. Number one. But is it worth the fight? Do I have the courage? Is it worth the sacrifice? America has been worth it every single time. Few seconds of Ron DeSantis' rollout. Today's his big day. Finally, the most anticipated launch that I can remember in quite some time. And the Trump team is already ready for him. They spent $15 million to attack him, and he wasn't even in yet. Uh, we'll talk about that, as well as Tim Scott's launch. He's got $2 million since Monday, which is pretty impressive. Uh, with me right now, Michael Goodwin of the New York Post. Michael, welcome back. Good morning, Brian. Thank you. All right, let's begin, if we can, and talk about what's happening in Chicago, and especially New York City. Eric Adams says, hey, you know what? I want to pull back on our uh, guaranteed shelter program where if you come to our if you come to our city from another nation, you're a guaranteed shelter because we're running out of shelter. The Roosevelt Hotel is already packed. He's got forty two thousand people here. The counties are spreading. the. He's trying to spread the pain to the other counties. They're suing him not to. What a mess. Well, Brian, yes. And and uh, let me just correct you on the numbers. The it. There are well over 70,000 here. I think it's 42,000 is the number that are in city facilities like the Roosevelt Hotel. Uh, So the number is bigger than the ones actually being housed. And we don't know what the others are doing. I mean, there's pretty it's fairly easy to track them when they arrive because they tend to come on buses. But there may be many, many more here that nobody has, has figured out. But look, the, the, the larger point is the city, the city's facilities, you know, the housing, the hotels, the shelters, I mean, the putting gym cots in gymnasiums, the old police training. Uh, I, I mean, it's, it's just a, a mess. And, uh, you know, in my column today, Brian, I, I say that, that Adams has done a lot of talking. He, he's occasionally criticized the White House. Um, he's, but he's trying to shift the blame to the Republican yeah, governors. Yeah, I want people to hear what we're talking about. Cut 33. Republicans, have, as we know, have blocked all attempts at fixing our broken immigration system, intentionally causing chaos and dysfunction. Really? I mean, he can't even believe that. Does there a laugh track in that speech? Well, there should be. I agree. It's it's. It, it has nothing to do with Republicans. Uh, the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, and others in, on border states were trying to get the attention of the White House to tell them, look, you've got to fix this. Our states are swamped. And so they sent a few thousand, not nowhere near the number that are actually here, a few thousand really as a symbolic uh, measure to show what it's like and for for Adams to you know repeat this lie that it's about comprehensive immigration reform it is not it is about a broken border system that allows everybody to come in and that's what's happened that the asylum claims are being abused that leftist lawyers are going to Mexico. The government is funding a lot of these charities to take care of them when they come into the country. But it's all designed to to bring in, I think, in many cases, cheap labor, 
Uh, it's a design to say America is not better than the rest of the world, that we have an obligation to take every comer. I mean, Brian, it just destroys the entire immigration system. And I think it, it casts aspersions on a lot of legal immigrants as well, which is why many of them oppose this open border policy. I want you to and hear, so, yeah, I want you to hear uh, Adams on what he plans on doing. I think it's going to make things worse. Cut 34. We have one message. Let them work. That is our clear message that we're sending. We must expedite work authorization for asylum seekers, not in the future, but now. In New York City, throughout our state and across the country, we have thousands of unfilled jobs. What's the problem with that? Well, look, if you give them work authorization papers, what is that not an incentive? Is that not an invitation to come? So even if if the United States starts doing that in many locales, then more people will come. If New York only does it, then more people will come to New York. I mean, it's crazy. It's another form of invitation. I mean, the, the city signed this decree almost 50 years ago now that it would provide shelter to anybody who didn't have it. That's the abuse now. So these people come, and the city is legally obligated. Now, to his credit, Adams is trying to limit that obligation and say, look, this this, uh, measure did not foresee 600 people coming a day, which is what the city is now experiencing, an average of 602 each day. So uh, one day hit 900. So that, that, that measure was a, a consent decree in the court signed by Ed Koch back in the 80s. It was not meant for this sort of number. And so he's trying to get out of that. But the issue then is uh, they're on the streets. I mean, as I say in the column, Brian, the one thing Adams has not done is say to Joe Biden, seal the border, secure the border. That's the answer, not moving them around to different Or asking cities, for more money. Or money or, or giving them work papers. None of this will stop what's happening at the border. And as I say in the you know, it's like uh, your bathtub is overflowing and you're going to take the water out with a teaspoon, but you don't turn off the faucet. That's what's happening here. They just keep coming in these numbers. So you've got to stop that. Then you can deal with the ones already here, get on this asylum issue, reject the claims that are patently false and force them to leave the country. So we have 40,000 here illegally. 70,000 have come through. So we don't know exactly. They're trying to put it into three SUNY schools, Stony Brook, Buffalo and Albany. All three say, I don't even know if we have room. Why didn't you even ask? Rockland, Orange, and Suffolk County all say we're going to sue you if you do this. And now, the same thing in Chicago. This is thousands. In Chicago, they got like 8,000, and they're overwhelmed, and they're putting them in police stations. More disrespect for the men and women in blue. Here's their police chief saying what they're dealing with now. Police chief union president, Cut 31, John Katsunara. The reality is we have 22 district police stations, and combined we have over 900 migrants living in them full-time. And at nighttime, there's almost no space for anybody to come in and walk in and do a report. There's literally not a square inch of open space. Such disrespect to a city that's falling apart before our eyes. Yeah, and and the cops, I mean, the cops have enough to do. 
I mean, Chicago keeps the cops very busy, just the the violence alone. So the whole thing, it it overwhelms. The numbers are so great. I mean, you know, Brian Fox has has really been the best at reporting the numbers. And, you know, there are north of 5 million people thought to have come through, roughly 1 million of those, uh, without making any claims, without identifying themselves, the so-called gotaways who just ran across the border and through the bush and escaped the border patrol. A million of those alone. We yeah. don't even know who they are. So this is untenable to, to keep this border open. I mean, it's just, you know, the cities are flooded. The suburbs cannot handle uh, numbers anywhere near what is necessary. I know. It's, it's, a ter- it's a disaster for the country. And, Brian, it will be with us for generations because this asylum claims there's a 10-year backlog in many cases. <laughs> it's, it's insane. I know. Uh, there is a labor shortage in our country and in almost every country. Uh, there's a way to attack this. This is not the way. So the president, uh, the, the governor of uh, Florida, decided to do something different. He's going to come on with Trey Gowdy at 8. But before that, he's going to go on uh, on Twitter, and he's going to be interviewed by Elon Musk. It looks like audio only, believe it or not. And he hasn't endorsed Governor DeSantis, but he says, I'm definitely going to vote Republican this time. Here's what Elon Musk said yesterday in the Wall Street Journal. Cut three. My preference, and I think the preference of most Americans, is really to have someone fairly normal in office. Um, <laughs> I think we'd all be quite uh, quite happy with that, actually. Um, you know, I think someone that uh, is representative of the moderate views that I think most of the country holds in reality. And he's saying he loved Tim Scott's rollout, but he clearly likes DeSantis. Uh, this is kind of interesting on a couple of things, because Trump uh, really made Twitter. And now he's not on Twitter. So DeSantis says, I think I'll go on that. And he's also showing that he could get a global audience with this, correct? Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting idea to roll it out. We'll have to see. I, I, I suspect there will be sort of several elements to this rollout. Um, but, you know, Brian, sooner or later, it's going to be about Trump. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, uh, the polls are kind of mystifying when you look at it through rational, traditional eyes. Donald Trump, at the beginning of this year, seemed to be slipping, that his support was eroding among the Republican base. Uh, Then he gets all these legal cases, particularly the one in Manhattan, and then the civil trial, the federal court in Manhattan also, uh, and his numbers go up. So he's now, in the last two months, the poll, the real clear average of polling shows Donald Trump with 56 percent support in the Republican primary, among Republican primary voters, and Ron DeSantis at just 19 percent. Nobody else really hits double digits. So 56 to 19, that's the hurdle for DeSantis. Can he peel away the Trump voter, enough Trump Mm -hmm. voters to win the primary? And don't forget, it's state by state, so it'll vary. I mean, in New Hampshire, for example, independent voters can vote in the Republican primary. Uh, So it's a kind of state by state. Iowa, of course, with the caucus, so you have to go to all 99 counties. But I think the challenge for DeSantis is going to be, can he win over enough Trump voters so that not only can he win the primary, but but he can also 
at least be competitive in the general election. Mm -hmm. Because right now, I think if Trump does not win the nomination, uh, he will either run as a third party or he will basically stay home and tell his voters to stay home. And if he does, it's hard to see how any Republican could win the general election if 25 or 30 percent of the Republican voters stay home on yeah. election day. I mean, if they try to do a Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, play his game and go after him, which everyone was saying do, that didn't work. Kasich went after him. That didn't work. Uh, being nice is probably not going to beat him. Uh, you know, Nikki Haley, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, Tim Scott gets uh, nothing but nice comments from Trump because he doesn't look at him as a threat. He wants right. a lot of people in right now. See, for DeSantis, I don't know the answer. Uh, I'm very, he can't avoid the challenge, and he, he no longer has an excuse to saying I'm not in it yet. But now when he comes back at him and says he wants a flat tax, he should define it. When he says I want you to retire at 70, he should explain it. And then attack back. I mean, that's the way you do it. But I think the ones um, you got to do it in a way that doesn't alienate the base. So good luck right. with that. I, it's yeah. very hard. We've never yeah. seen anything like this. That's right. And look, my, my view, Brian, is that uh, he's got to do that. Of course, he's got to at some point he can't he can't pretend he doesn't hear the insults that Trump will throw at him. Uh, but fundamentally, I think he has to beat him as a candidate. In other words, he has to provide better ideas. He has to look like the person who can be president and get things done and not have – because I think very few people like the Trump gimmickry, like the personal misconduct issues. I think DeSantis I, – I do believe there is room – to be a different kind of uh, MAGA leader. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what DeSantis has to be. He has to attract those voters, not on the basis of out-insulting Trump, but on the basis of a better vision for a Republican Party, for a Republican president, and what that could mean for the country. I mean, uh, it, it's vague, but it's also, to me, clear that that's the only way you can beat Trump and gotcha. attract his voters. Michael Goodwin, always great. New York Post columnist. Thank you, Michael. My pleasure, Brian. Thank you. You, you got it. I have some calls when we come back. one 408 7669 Glad you're here. Or write me, com. Don't move. It's Brian Kilmeade. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, welcome back. We've got a couple of minutes here. So let's go out to Howard in Florida. Hey, Howard. Hey, Brian. How are you? Good. What's on your mind? DeSantis, big uh, day. Yeah, yeah. listen, I'm obviously a Floridian. I support DeSantis. I'm not against Trump, and, and, and that's really important. But the, the point is that he does have a path to victory. Trump Trump is has a string of losses attached to his name. He lost the presidency. He lost seats in the House. He lost the Senate under him. And to, to be honest with you, his path to victory is, is – is, I don't think he can win. Arizona and Georgia are two states that the Republicans need to win. He's lost those. And the people he, he's backed in those states lost. So there's a big thing about policies, but the reality is Trump's a bad leader. He's polarizing, and he just can't win, and I think that that's the highlight for this. Well, he, his best-selling point, Howard, is has he's re, everything that Joe Biden has reversed of Trump's has blown up. And it makes some people maybe say, you know what, I'll put up with the other stuff. I love the direction he had, and I love the foreign policy he put in place. 
Howard, good points. Byron, Trumbull, Connecticut. Real quick, Byron. Invaders coming across. Catholic Charities is helping them. I know. And they have all these buildings around the country that are empty six and a half days a week. Why don't they just put all the the invaders in there? Hey, Byron, listen, I say it all the time. They are the place where they go, and they get huge checks from the government to house and feed them, uh, which is not in the best interest of our country. If you want to help them, go to their countries, Catholic Charities. Help them in their country. Don't tell them to come here. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. To have Yogi not included in the greatest living players of 2015... I mean, that makes no sense to me whatsoever. I, I don't I don't quite understand that. There are only two people with more than 350 home runs and fewer than 500 strikeouts in the whole history of Major League Baseball. And their names are Joe DiMaggio and Yogi Berra. And uh, that, was, that is Joe Madden and Marty Opel. Joe Madden, a great manager. Uh, Marty Opel, uh, of unbelievable insight. He's a uh, PR guy for the Yankees, been around forever. And uh, he really knows just about every Yankee worth knowing, uh, including Yogi Berra. Lindsay Berra is in studio with us now. If you're smart enough to get the stream, you're watching her. Uh, he's the, she is the granddaughter of Yogi Berra and executive producer of the new documentary, It Ain't Over. Lindsay, great to see you in person. Great to, great to be here. Thanks right. for having me. So what made you realize? Did you, you were getting concerned that people were forgetting about your dad and how great he was? Yeah, we opened the documentary at the 2015 All-Star Game, and they had a ceremony pregame presenting the four greatest living players. And it was Hank Aaron, Johnny Bench, Sandy Koufax, and Willie Mays. But I was sitting there watching the presentation with my very much alive Grandpa Yogi, and I looked at him and I said, are you dead? And he said, not yet, because while all of those players are amazing, and I don't think he should have replaced any of them, he should have been the fifth person out there with 10 World Series championships, which is more than all four of them combined. But at that point, I hadn't really started about thinking about making a documentary. Grandpa was still with us. He passed away a few months after that. Um, It was a few years later when our producer, Peter Soboloff, um, he actually saw the Mr. Rogers documentary and wondered why there was not a documentary like that about my grandpa Yogi. And he brought the idea to my dad and uncle. Did you call him Yogi? I called I called him Grandpa. Okay. <laughs> I didn't call him Yogi. Grandpa, grandpa, Yogi. Grandpa. So when you when you watch the documentary, I actually narrate the documentary, and it was really hard for me to call him Yogi or Yogi Berra. So I kind of go back and forth between calling him Grandpa and calling him Yogi in the doc. When the um, director said we're going to have to use his name sometimes, Linz. <laughs> <laughs> understood. Um, so in terms of, did it bother him that he wasn't out there? Did it bother him that sometimes people thought? Yeah, didn't know how what he did on the field because he was such a fun-loving guy. So my grandfather was very able to let things roll off of his back. When he first broke into the big leagues, they said that – and they, writers, other players said he looked like a gorilla. He looked like an ape. He looked like a fire hydrant. He looked like a fat girl running in a too tight skirt. He was too ugly this to be a Yankee. Then? They wrote in the newspaper he was too ugly to be a Yankee. First of all, I don't know what that means. Second of all, if you look at pictures of him when he was young, he was kind of handsome. So I don't know what they were talking about. He very famously said – I never saw anyone hit with his face. So he he didn't really care what other 
people thought. I think that's a product of that generation. He went through the D-Day invasion at Normandy. He was a machine gunner on an LCSS going ashore, providing cover fire for our troops at, at, at Omaha Beach. You don't live through an actual life or death situation and come home without some perspective. He was very grateful to be here when so many other men were not. And he really did approach the rest of his life with gratitude for every minute and a profound sense of joy. The man was playing a kid's game for a living, and that was what he cared about. What personalities from his own block, Joe Garagiola, who ended Mm -hmm. up being this big personality and hosted the Today Show, he was a catch with the Cardinals. Yep. And he said, no one ever thought I was great. He goes, I wasn't even the best person on my block because yeah, I grew so up crazy. with Yogi Berra. They grew up directly across the street from each other, 5447 and 5446 Elizabeth Avenue on the hill in St. Louis. And um, Jack Buck actually grew up down the street. And then there were also five guys from the hill who made the 1950 World Cup soccer team who beat England for sure. the first time. They were such me? great athletes on the hill. It's crazy. And they what all do you mean by played, hill? What's that? Uh, the hill was the Italian section uh, in St. Louis. Wow. That is fascinating. I did not know that. Uh, That was uh, the greatest game. Here's Derek Jeter and Roger Angel uh, talking about what kind of person and what kind of player he was. Cut 44. Sometimes a pitcher gives away their pitches to a hitter. If you're paying close attention to the pitcher, he could come down so far for a fastball, come down lower for a curveball. You watch it. Then Yogi hits one out in the right field. He hit with power and... The amazing thing was almost never struck out. Because he swung at everything. And that's the key. You can't strike out if you don't get two strikes, right? If you don't get to two strikes. And Yogi swung at everything. He's probably one of the best bad ball hitters there was in the game. Um, That's interesting that Cheetah would know that. Yeah, so Grandpa went had his feud with Steinbrenner for 14 years and then made up and went back to the ballpark in 1999 and then spent 13 years going to uh, spring trainings. And he really got to be close with Derek Jeter, Jorge Posada, Tino Martinez, Paul O'Neill, that whole next generation of of Yankees. Um, But what they're mentioning there, what Roger Angel says about Grandpa abolishing the strike zone, he really never struck out. There's only two players in the history of all of Major League Baseball, not just the Yankees, with more than 350 home runs and fewer than 500 strikeouts. It's Grandpa and Joe DiMaggio. And if you look at his 1950 season, I think it's one of the greatest seasons in the history of baseball. 656 plate appearances. He hit 322 with 28 home runs, 124 RBIs, and struck out 12 times in the entire season. What did managing mean to him? He really loved to mentor younger players, and he, my Uncle Dale, who played for my grandfather with the Yankees, and he played with the Pirates as well, he um, talks about what a great players manager Grandpa was because he cared about the kids, the players, so much as as people. You know, if Dave Rigetti, you know, blew a game or something, Grandpa would knock on the hotel room door three hours after the game and, hey, kid, are you all right? I uh, just want to make sure you're you're feeling okay about tomorrow. You're going to do great. Like, managers don't do that. He he, he really cared about the people like teaching the game uh to folks and you know he did that with both the yankees and the mets he was um the the only the second manager in history to bring uh teams from both leagues to the world series and it was it was an important part of his career was he manager of the mets in 73 uh he was that brought him to the world series one win away from beating the athletics yep uh, to come back like he did, that was a big that was a big comeback year, wasn't it's it? And that's that's the origin of his most famous yogism ever. It ain't over till it's over. Right, and then too bad the uh, the Athletics was so talented. Yeah, they they were, were. Oh, that was a great team. Were you a big baseball fan? 
I, I, I mean, you could not be in my family. The games were just always on. He, he, Grandpa was a fan of all sports, so he got me into ice hockey growing up. I played hockey in, in, in uh, high school. And How in, many in grandchildren college. did he have? Eleven. And, and you, did you find yourself more akin to him? Did you feel yourself more attached to him maybe than the others? Um, I think I was just around him for the most time. My my parents also got divorced when I was young, around five, and I was I spent a lot of time at my grandparents' house. They were kind of like a second set of parents to me. And Grandpa and I kind of bonded over a lot of things. He got me into boxing as a young kid. We used to watch fights together. He used to come to all my my hockey games in the winter because he was around during the winter because baseball only happens in the summer. Um, you know, he was real into Seinfeld reruns. We'd be up there watching those with him and, you know, making meatballs on the holidays and whatnot. He was really involved with all the grandkids. But as the oldest one, I obviously spent the most time. Well, is it hard to do this and not miss him? Oh, my God. Absolutely. I'm constantly amazed with how close to the surface the emotions are with regard to both my Grandpa Yogi and my Grammy Carmen. Um And, and it's such a gift, this movie, with all the archival footage and being able to see Video. There's not many 45-year-old people who have video of their grandparents in their mid-20s, and wow. I can see them talking and their mannerisms. He looks just like my brother Larry, um, which is great. I didn't, I didn't know my grandpa at the age that my brother is, but they look just alike. Um, and then also just to be able to see that old archival footage in the documentary of grandpa hitting. He used a really big, long, heavy bat, 34-inch, 35- or 36-ounce bat, which is unheard of today, and he wasn't the biggest guy. And you watch him manhandle it through the strike zone and basically do whatever he wants with the ball it's it's really cool to be able to watch all that stuff i mean his wrists and forearms must have been massive the meat hooks. Is, yeah yeah <laughs> that's the way you said it i should have said that mm-hmm. um so uh, iconically i never saw him play but famously when don larson tosses the the perfect game yogi hugs him yeah here's don larson talking about that cut 45 larson is ready gets the sign Two strikes ball one here comes the pitch strike three So we didn't hear him talk about that, but he does talk about it. What did that mean to him? Grandpa used to say that was the, the that was a perfect game in the 1956 World Series, and Grandpa used to say it ain't been done before and it ain't been done since. It's the only one. My favorite little-known fact about that game, though, my grandmother was watching the game in the stands uh, with Whitey Ford's wife, Joni, and the final batter in that game was Dale Mitchell. And my grandmother is seven months pregnant at the time, and she says to Joni Ford, if we get this batter out and he gets this perfect game I'll name my baby Dale and I have an Uncle Dale. <laughs> that is unbelievable. I remember <laughs> Dale Barry played third base for the yeah. Yankees. Yeah. Wow. That's unbelievable. I did not no one probably knew that. Nope. All right. And that was great. Now Don Larson was a little bit like David Wells who would also from the same town I think it also throw a perfect game. They like to party a little <laughs> bit. Didn't they have that reputation? They do and Don actually didn't know he was pitching that game and may or may not have been out a little too late the night before and when he rolled up to Yankee Stadium the ball was in his locker, and uh, surprise, surprise, but Grandpa was able to that, – that was one of the things that Grandpa was known for, being able to get the most out of pitchers and get the most out of their stuff on any given day. And Don says that 97 pitches, he never shook Grandpa off once. Wow, uh, that's unbelievable. Uh, Lindsey Barris here. The documentary is now out. It ain't over. When we come – we come back, we're to see it, and at what timing we can go over this, right? Sure. Because you put your heart and soul into this. You want everyone to check it out. I do. Don't move. Brian Kilmeade Show. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show.
The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Till the day he died, he knew Jackie was out. He knew Jackie then. He got volatile. He's out. Just ask Yogi, right? I mean, he told that story year after year, and you could get him going with it. Yogi? Jackie Robinson style. No. What do you mean he was out? Oh, my God. No, forget about that. Now, when you want to get Yogi upset, Yogi, I think he was safe. And he looked at me like, Moreno, he was out. No, Yogi, I mean, I, I, I'm looking at the video. And I, I think he was safe. He was out. He used to get mad at me, too, man. I used to go, oh, Yogi, he was safe. You know he was safe. And he used to go, oh, oh, boy, well, he, boy, he, he was out. So that is, uh, uh, that uh. is all Yogi Berra's friends and teammates and opponents talking about Jackie Robinson, whether he was out or safe. Set the scene for me, Lindsay Berra. After all, you have a documentary out about your grandfather. It ain't over. So Jackie Robinson stole home in the 1955 World Series, and the umpire, Bill Summers, called him safe, and it's the maddest I've ever seen my grandfather in real life or on video. He jumped out of his crouch, and I always say he was, like, rooting tooting mad, like Yosemite Sam, the veins popping out of his neck, screaming and yelling at Bill Summers. Um, and, you know, it just it, it's become one of the most famous plays in, in, in World Series history. Grandpa insisted until the day he died that Jackie had been out. Um, but, you know, the Dodgers I, won that one, right? The Dodgers. Did they end up winning that they one? They lost that game, actually, but they won that World Series in, in, in 55. Um, but I always, I kind of like to take the high road on this and say with Jackie Robinson, safe or out didn't really matter. What mattered was that he was in, in the big (laughs) leagues. Um, but grandpa and Jackie were very, very good friends and the family stayed very close even after Jackie passed in 1972 at grandpa Yogi's 90th birthday party in 2015, Rachel Robinson, Jackie's widow rolled in and there's a, a whole bunch of people in the theater at the museum and she sees grandpa through the crowd and she makes the safe sign with her arms and grandpa makes the outside with his fist and then she went and gave him a big hug and a big kiss so wow. we Bears and Robinsons agree to disagree on that one wow, that is so interesting <laughs> and just to be um, you know to see the polo grounds I never saw it I never saw Ebbets Field Yankee Stadium still exists it just moved across the street as they got it rebuilt again uh, so you're th- when they talk about and I know people are listening around the country now mm-hmm. When they talk about the polo grounds in Ebbetsfield, when your grandfather used to talk about, did he talk about the rivalries between the Giants and Dodgers in? It's funny. People ask me this a lot, and he talked less about the rivalries and more about his friendships with guys on the other teams. You know, he was very, very close with with Gil Hodges, um, you know, yeah, and, and, and like Roy Campanella and Duke Snyder, and, and they were all just buddies. And when um, – um, that the, the shot hit around the world home run. Grandpa was at the game, like he was. He would go over there and watch on on his days off the the games in on the the national Dodgers side Giants to know who he would just kind of to check out who he'd be playing in the World Series. But they would attend each other's games. They would go out to dinners together. So yes, while the rivalry it was you know a great kind of Subway Series rivalry happening there in New York, they they were all kind of buddies. And Lindsay, I never knew that. What you just said that that blows me away. I thought they might need each other at card shows, but I didn't know they were. <laughs> When they were contemporaries, but they were actually friendly. Back then, Grandpa grandpa, and my grandmother and my grandma Carmen used to talk about New York being a really small town back then. And if you were a famous person, if you were an actor, a politician, a musician, uh, a, a famous athlete – 
there were only like a few places, like high-end places where those kind of folks would hang out. It was Toot Shores, the 21 Club, the Copacabana, the Birdcage up in Harlem. So you ran into all those folks. You know, my grandfather had a crush on Sophia Loren because he saw Sophia Loren on the regular at, at the 21 Club or wherever the heck they would go. And I remember my grandmother would tell me about eating dinner with Roger Bannister when he was trying to break the four-minute mile. It just – it was a smaller town and kind of everybody knew everybody and those friendships existed. Which it brings me to my next question. They needed off-season jobs. They weren't <laughs> multimillionaires back no. then. I mean, so he made the most he ever made in one year was? 60000 but more years it was like forty five, forty eight, fifty thousand, which is about the equivalent of a half a million dollars today, which is a good living, but it's not like, you know, crazy Boku bucks like guys are making today. Had to have jobs in the off-season. What are some of Yogi Berra's jobs? He sold Christmas trees in a, like, landscapey type lot on the hill in St. Louis. He worked at the American shops in Newark selling suits, men's suits. He worked in a hardware store. He was not good at any of these things. So he and his buddy Phil Rizzuto, shortstop for the Yankees, in 1958, they opened a bowling alley uh, in Clifton, New Jersey, Rizzuto Barra Lanes. And that was their off-season source of income for, for many years. And did it do well? It did. It did great. It was there for a while. And then it became Astro Bowl in the 80s, I think. Um, but it was like a real family affair. My grandfather's brother, John, moved from St. Louis to run the bar, and Phil's uh, brother actually managed the bowling side of it. Wow, that's fantastic. So you put together this documentary because you can concerned about people forgetting how great your uh, your grandfather was. Where can we see it in the theaters? So right now it is open in theaters across the country, New York, Los Angeles, St. Louis, Chicago, San Diego, San Francisco. It's opening in more cities each week throughout uh, the rest of May and June. So Dallas and Kansas City this weekend, then Denver, all over Florida, Atlanta, Portland, New Orleans. Um, you can hit um, the website itain'tovermovie.com and check the listings near you. How does your uncle and your father feel about them keeping the name alive? I mean, they're they're all thrilled. My dad and my uncles are all in the movie telling, you know, fantastic stories about Grandpa and what it was like growing up with him and and Grammy Carmen. It's a a really nostalgic film, and my whole family is very proud of it. But I do want to make it very clear that while there is a lot of baseball in the movie and it will satisfy the, you know, uber baseball fan, you don't have to be a baseball fan to see this movie. As a first-generation Italian immigrant, a veteran of the D-Day invasion, Grandpa had a beautiful 65-year love story story with my Grammy Carmen. There's something in this movie that appeals to everyone as a human story, and you really don't have to be like a baseball Mm -hmm. nut to enjoy it. And the yogiisms throughout? The yogiisms throughout, even though I do think that personality and the yogiisms overshadowed Grandpa's accomplishments on the field, the yogiisms are a, a big part of who he was. And I think the film really highlights the brilliance of the yogiisms. If you initially say, oh, that's silly, maybe. But then when you really think about it, they're profound. And I think they are. I love every time I go to see a crowded place, I go, that place is so crowded. Nobody ever goes goes there there anymore. anymore, I think about that. I use it's deja vu all over again all the time. My favorite is the world were perfect. If the world were perfect, it wouldn't be. And who can really argue with that? (laughs) It ain't over. Lindsay Barrett. Thank you. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hello, welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. We're going to have uh, a guy named Bill Hemmer, who you see in the halls all the time. And then Martha McCallum used to host the show with Bill Hemmer. It's going to be a fantastic hour. So we come to you from 
world headquarters of Fox at, 20, at 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, so uh, it's going to be a big hour, and there's so much going on today. In fact, today at 6 o'clock, you'll see a Twitter – what do they call it again, Allison? Twitter Square? Twitter Spaces. Now, I don't really know – I hear Twitter Spaces. I don't know anyone on it, but they're going to stream it. Elon Musk is going to do the interview along with um, another VIP – they're going to be interviewing Ron DeSantis two hours later. He goes on with Trey Gowdy and his official. The most anticipated launch of a campaign that I remember, especially because he's not the favorite to win. Donald Trump is with a substantial lead. So there's a lot uh, lot going on today. In fact, here is Ron DeSantis's ad. And keep in mind, just show it's clearly him. You see his shadow. Then you see his profile. And then he walks on stage. Cut one. They call it faith because in the face of darkness, you can see that brighter future. A faith that our best days lay ahead of us. But is it worth the fight? Do I have the courage? Is it worth the sacrifice? America has been worth it every single time. I like it. You don't need, it's not a bio spot, but I like it. But you can't do bio every day and... You know, people have come up and say, listen, I, I'd give me give me a big crowd. Give me a big speech and then make everybody cover it. And then you do Elon Musk. That's what Rich Lowry was saying earlier. OK, but, you know, Douglas Murray, one of the deepest thinkers, most experienced guys you'll have around, says, I love it. I love it saying to everybody, I got social media. I understand Elon Musk supports me, may not endorse me, but supports me. And then I'm going to go on the platform that Donald Trump made famous and Donald Trump's not on it. And then I'm going to tell you, do the traditional thing and go on Fox. And Trey Gowdy's is, I believe they serve together at the same time. So Trey Gowdy's always going to have an inside straight when it comes to booking a lawmaker like Tim Scott and, and now like Ron DeSantis. So Tim Scott, great rollout, wonderful speech, so conversational. He did go heavy bio. Cut six. I rose from a child of poverty to a candidate for president of the United States because we chose patriotism over pity and to be victors, not victims. Made in America, that's my story. To the radical left that says we're an evil, declining country, I say the truth of my life disproves your lies. I'm Tim Scott, and I approve this message because I have faith in America and our president should too. And he's got about $2 million raised since the announcement on Monday. And I think he probably thought his announcement was safe because who would want to do a rollout right before Memorial Day when things go dormant, people stop watching TV unless it's raining in your area? Well, I know what he says. I'm kind of running already. I'll make it official. I'll do some things over the weekend. I'm a veteran, so I'm going to belong in some of these political military events. And then next week, ready to roll. And I don't think necessarily there's any traditional way that's going to apply today because he's taking on a former president who's still popular. Nobody wanted Jimmy Carter to run again. George H.W. Bush says, I'm done. It's my son's time. So think about those who lost in the past. Nixon got ousted. So Reagan ran twice. Everybody knew he was going to run twice, and he was done. So this is the first time in my lifetime another guy's going to give it another shot after he lost in 2020. And he's on a roll, but he's got challenges. He's got these legal challenges straight ahead to the point where Jim Trustee asked to meet with Merrick Garland about what seems to be an indictment on the Mar-a-Lago document case. 
So the legal the legal challenges are there, no doubt about it. And I think in the beginning it's going to give them a boost, but after a while, if it's close, they're going to go, do we really want this legal drama? However, just to flip on what I just said, a lot of people tell me this is so political. It's only about Trump. They see Hunter Biden getting away with it, Joe Biden not even being asked about it, and they say that makes me want Trump more. The other thing that makes you want Trump more is almost everything Joe Biden's doing is not working. He's got 30% approval on the border, 32% on the economy, 36 to 38% overall for his job approval. Look at the military. Look at China. Look at what's happening in, in the Middle East and beyond. And then you see what's happening with this debt ceiling deal. He's doing a terrible job. He's negotiated horribly. It's good news for Republicans, but it makes people say, maybe the other guy wasn't so bad, perhaps. We'll see. Here's Stephen Miller on what Trump has already contributed to the Republican Party. He's a longtime Trump aide. Cut 12. The Bushism, the preceded Trump, the Ryanism, the McConnellism, that era of American politics is completely dead, buried, and gone. Now, many adherents are still hanging around, I will acknowledge. But what President Trump did to shift the conversation to being about the working class, the working people, their concerns, their dreams, their hopes, who don't want uncontrolled immigration, who don't want stupid foreign wars, who don't want our jobs being sent to China, that multi-ethnic coalition that President Trump created is going to dominate American discourse and American politics for a long, long time to come. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And very few people are saying, I want to be the next George W. Bush right now. But I think that his approval rating is over 50 percent because of the class in which he held the office. And I also think he is. I've always said this. People are tired of hearing me say it. As the years go by, they're going to think he's better and better because they're going to understand what was in his lap during his eight years. And it was a ton and a lot of it had nothing to do with it being his fault, including the economy collapsing and including 9-11. It would be almost impossible to stop if you put yourself in his shoes. But having said that, he responded, well, I don't love President Trump's foreign policy. I don't look at Ukraine as an unnecessary foreign war. I look at it as totally necessary. Many of you don't agree with me, and that's fine. But that's where Ron DeSantis and others, they might agree with me like Kevin McCarthy does, like Lindsey Graham does, like Michael Waltz does. But it's not a good issue for Republicans. In my lifetime, I never thought I'd hear that because for the most part, they're so pro-military and pro-defense and pro-taking on Russia, hence Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, uh, just about every Republican president from Eisenhower on down. They're in a different spot right now. And that's because of Trump and people are afraid to get on the other side of Trump on major issues. Charlie Hurt weighed in. Charlie Hurt weighed in on this, and I thought it was interesting. He, did, he contrasted what DeSantis doesn't have. Cut 14. The problem with, for DeSantis is, you know, he has tremendous support in Florida. He's done great things in Florida. But if you talk to people in Florida who love him, the reason they love him is because they've been personally affected by his policies and what he's done. If you live in Iowa, you've not been personally affected by what Ron DeSantis has done with his policies in Florida. And he's got to figure out how to convey that. And Donald Trump has this loyal following. Ron DeSantis is still kind of figuring out how to convey that to voters he hasn't personally affected. All I could tell you is why are people I've never seen a second place person who's never been in the lead in the race attacked from every angle like a man that is not even formally, at least for a few more hours, a candidate. What do they fear about DeSantis? What did they try so hard to expose about DeSantis? 
It bothers him that he's not unnerved. It bothers him that he takes on everyone from 60 Minutes to every Democratic opponent, getting everything he wanted with the supermajority in Florida, putting together more of a conservative agenda than anyone even thought was possible in what used to be a purple state. Lastly, the person who weighed in about that was Elon Musk himself is going to be doing part of the interviewing tonight on a platform that he bought for $44 billion. Here's Elon Musk on why interviewing DeSantis matters. Cut to. I see you're uh, interviewing Ron DeSantis tomorrow morning. Is that right? On Twitter spaces? I see. Um, yes, I think it's, uh, yes, I um, will be interviewing um, Ron DeSantis, and he has uh, quite an announcement to make. Um, and will be, be the first time that something like this is happening on social media and with uh, real-time questions and answers. Uh, not, not scripted. And here's what he went on to say about DeSantis while not endorsing him. Cut three. My preference, and I think would be the preference of most Americans, is really to have someone fairly normal in office. Um, <laughs> I think we'd all be quite uh, quite happy with that, actually. Um, you know, I think someone that uh, is representative of the moderate views that I think most of the country holds in reality. Elon Musk. And also, this is a huge boon to Twitter. It underlines what people want. A social media platform that is not being screened by people that hate Republicans or love Republicans or love Democrats or hate Democrats. Right now, everything leans left and people wonder how the FBI is playing, what the role they're doing, what the moderators are doing, what are the Zuckerbucks going to roll out to make sure any Republican loses. You don't have to worry about that with Twitter. And for those people who think Elon Musk is just a hardcore conservative, you're not paying attention because he's not. He's got the first electric car, mass-produced electric car, that's successful ever. Do you really think that's the green agenda Republicans run around on? All right, you listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Martha McCallum's in the bullpen. She's going to be coming in, and then we're going to roll in Bill Hemmer. We're going to find out once and for all if they do indeed get along. Don't move. Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. And I do think it's important that Twitter be uh, have both the reality and the perception of a uh, level playing field, of uh, a place where uh, all voices are heard and where uh, there's the kind of dynamic inter- uh, interaction that is you don't really see anywhere else. Uh, Elon Musk uh, uh, dealing, uh, actually broadcasting with the WallStreetJournal.com talking about what was happening today. For him, it's, a big, it's big news. I think for Twitter... As I just mentioned, going to break, Elon Musk is going to be doing one of the people doing the interviews of Ron DeSantis. It's going to be unscripted, uh, and it's going to be on Twitter. Two hours later, he's going on with Trey Gowdy to formalize it, and he's not doing a big rally. So people don't compare a crowd size or messaging. He did roll out an ad. Martha McCallum is, is uh, taking this in like everybody else and analyzing it throughout her show. begins again at 3 o'clock, but most importantly is here now. Martha, were you surprised that 
we're going to be Twitter Spaces is going to be the place yeah. you're making the announcement? Um, a little bit, you know, and I also think it, it got moved up, right? Originally, we heard he might file at the end of the week and then do an announcement over the weekend. So it's clear that behind the scenes, they've been kind of rethinking this on the fly in terms of how they're going to roll it out. I think it's a bold choice to do this with Elon Musk. I think that he obviously has... Um, been he's he's an extraordinary individual in modern in contemporary American history right so he's an innovator um, and he has said that he doesn't care if he makes any money off of Twitter right and he can afford to say that but he cares so much about the free the free sort of town hall forum that he wants to create that he is willing to to make sure he maintains that so now you've got this presidential candidate who is the second uh, in line in terms of polling numbers right now to President Trump, and he's down by quite a bit. He's got to make a big splash. And I think this is a very interesting way to do it. It's a little bit risky because he can't sort of control all the parameters of a conversation with Elon Musk. Um, But I think that in and of itself is going to make everybody tune in. So it's just so interesting that he I've never seen somebody so attacked who clearly was never the front runner. I can't believe how, how hard people have attacked him from the left and the right. And I think Donald Trump spent like $20 million already to dismantle Ron DeSantis. And I talked to a friend of Donald Trump's who told him not to run and said that if Ron DeSantis doesn't get in soon, he is by the time he gets in, he's going to be so labeled it's not going to matter. And that was two months ago. Do you think there's a real danger of that no matter what he says? Trump's labels of saying he wants to retire when you're 70, to tax you at 24 percent, of all these things of him being like that, of being labeled at something he's not? You know, a a couple things there. Um, I think I'm a big believer that you have to seize your political moment. I do not know where Ron DeSantis will be four years from now if he doesn't run now. I do think this is his moment. There was a tremendous amount of momentum behind him throughout COVID. And obviously, it is a very perilous position to put yourself in to run against someone who in some senses, is running as an incumbent, a first-term president who lost in the second round and four years later comes back again. So his name recognition is enormous. Um, He's a former president. So this is a huge hill for DeSantis to climb. I also think with regard to, you know, not retiring until you're 70, President Trump has been very clear. This is a loser issue, right? He thinks that's a loser issue to amend our entitlements. And he thinks abortion is a loser issue for Republicans. So anybody who wants to run against him has to be better at articulating their thought process around those things. Those actually are quite popular ideas with the American people, and he needs to figure out how to clearly articulate them in a way that I think Ron DeSantis probably can. Right. Uh, I think he can. He hasn't tried. We no. watch those ads. And, you know, with the ads leave out, he says he wanted a fair tax. Right. What they leave out is that all oh, the other tax should be gone. He's not saying 23% on top of everything. He's just saying no matter what you make, this is all you take, we take out. Yeah. I mean, the American people live a lot longer than they used to. You saw what happened in France, though. Yes. I I know, but but people need to understand what kind of society do we want to be? Do we want to be a society that is sort of working to provide for ourselves and our families? um, Or do we want to be an entitlement society? And we don't have enough money to support the system. Somebody's got to work. Right? Eventually... The money will run out and, and not so eventually a fact in, in within 10 years, these programs are going to hit a wall. Everyone knows this. 
Everyone knows it. So it's disingenuous of politicians to pretend like that's not going to happen just so that they can elect and speak truth to people. Explain to them that if you are over, you know, 40, 40 years old, say, nothing is going to change in your Social Security. If you're under 40 years old, then you will get it at 70. Those people are going to those under 40 folks, they're going to live to be 100. Right. Uh, that's what I believe. And, too, when Social Security first came out, I think we were living, living, uh, living to 55 or 60. That's right. So we weren't even going to get those benefits. That should have been outrageous. Yeah. It, <laughs> that should have been. Wait it, a second. I'm it, dead <laughs> 10 years? Exactly. Uh, it, it's, uh, it wasn't season. designed to support entire, you know, to, to support people through their retirement for 30 years. It wasn't. Right. Uh, so we're going to talk about that. I'll, let's just finish up here because I do want to talk about the debt ceiling when we come back. But uh, but just finishing up the Ron DeSantis message. So tonight, I can tell you that how Trey Gowdy's interview is going to go. The, we don't know what exactly is going to come out. But overall, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, when Ron DeSantis sits down with uh, with all that money and all these advisors, what are they going to say he does when Donald Trump attacks him? Are they going to say the Marco Rubio thing? You want to get dirty? I'll get dirty. It didn't work. Ted Cruz, you're going to do I talk about my wife. I'm going to come after you. I don't think Ted Cruz's dad was ever up until Donald Trump uh, said it was implicated in the JFK assassination. But that was out for a while. So these guys attacked back. It didn't work, Martha. No, this is this is gladiator tactician discussion level, right? You have to have a battle plan. You have to know he's going to come at you in the dirtiest way possible. And just that's always been the way he, he believes that that's the way to do it, right? Whatever if someone hits you, you got to hit them back harder, whatever it takes. So he has to be ready for that. And he has to do it uh, in a way that, you know, I, I think his strongest thing, honestly, is that he's young and fresh and that he has good, you know, sort of good karma from from Florida in terms of COVID and in terms of how he handled uh, the woke and the parent issues as well. So he's he has to just really lean into that young, fresh identity. Let's move here. But unless you're black, according to the NAACP, it's dangerous. Yes, Florida. Which is, yeah, which yeah, is not true. That. And the guy who runs the NAACP lives in Tampa. Exactly. So how could that be exactly. named? More with Martha. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. I just consider this morning session, look, I walked in, spoke with the aides from the White House as well. Um, we have very good discussions. Um, we know where each, each other are currently located. We know there's a will to try to find a way. So, And people have to look at different angles. And so uh, there's times that they go back, we think different ways, and see what we can get. Speaker McCarthy, what, what should people be doing with their money? Is there a reason to sell stocks and in case the market crashes? No. We're, we're going to be okay. So Kevin McCarthy's got to be smart about it. He can't panic the markets. He can go to put addition, in my view, would put additional pressure on him and his and his caucus to come up with some type of deal with the president. But so far, they seem to be at loggerheads. While they all both say there is marginal progress, I also noticed the press secretary did not take unnecessary shots at the Republicans for the first time in a long time. Martha McCallum and Bill Hemmer are in studio. They once hosted a show together. Hey, Many people think this moment wouldn't have happened. <laughs> I made it happen. Allison made it happen, actually. <laughs> uh, and Pete. So, guys, we have a lot to discuss. Debt ceiling, first yes, off, eight do. days and counting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you have that business background, Martha. Can you start? Are you worried? Yeah, uh, not really. 
Um, and for this reason, we've seen this in 2010, 2011. We've been down this road before. We know that Congress always finds a way to raise the debt ceiling. I am not worried about the debt ceiling. I am worried about the debt. This is what people need to pay attention to. And there was a great piece in the Wall Street Journal this week by Phil Graham and Mike Salon. And in it, they point out this is one of the tenets of the McCarthy plan is to use some of that COVID money that was designated for COVID and use use that money first, right? There's $360 billion that has not been that has not been tapped into. And what they're saying here is it says therefore every dollar of the post-pandemic spending surge that the House debt ceiling prevents from being spent is a dollar the Fed doesn't need to crowd out the private spending to tamp down inflation. So we need to drain the market of this excess trillions of dollars of excess money that floated in that caused the inflation that we're experiencing now. And those two things can, can serve each other. One other quick thing here that I found very interesting, a quote from Janet Yellen. She said, if the debt ceiling is not raised, we will have to make some very hard choices. To which I say, then the inverse is true. If you raise the debt ceiling, you don't have to make any hard choices. And that is what we've all been living under for years and years and years. Every family and business in this country make hard choices every single day. We have money for this. We don't have money for that. It's time politicians on Capitol Hill and the president of the United States, Republican or Democrat, started to have some responsibility that will actually serve this nation. And it's the debt that's the problem, not the debt ceiling. And because we're paying on interest. You know how frustrating it is when you first get a mortgage and you look right. at you're not and touching the principal. you're only paying interest, exactly. Right. Bill Hemmer, you were writing stuff down. Hey, was that yeah, for was just, after the show? No, or? I was just <laughs> listening to what Martha was saying here. I, I, I just, it's so faux to me. I this totally whole argument is like panic. Yeah, I mean, it's like watching grass grow. Wake me up when it's over. I, I think we've had 13 of these in like 12 or 15 years. Yeah, but the problem with wake me up when it's over is that we don't cut any spending. Well, no, I, I, I <laughs> you get know? you. Um, if I were Joe Biden, right, and I'm running for reelection, I thought for sure, guys, when he cut his short trip from Tokyo uh, or Hiroshima, he was going to come home and accept some uh, spending limitations. He's running He's running for re-election. We're going to raise it a little bit. We're also going to bring down our spending. Would that not be attractive to moderate Democrats? Would that not be attractive to, to independents? I do. Um, as far as June 1st goes, I, I think it's always a moving target. They're moving, they're moving money. Absolutely they're moving it is. I think they could do this thing up until Labor Day back and forth. Yeah. And, you, and they're already you, asking agencies to yeah. figure out what choices they can make. That's I, what they can do. I, I'm old enough to remember. I think it was the Bill Clinton days when they hit the debt ceiling and they closed the national parks. Mm-hmm. And sure yep. enough, the media all went out to like Yosemite and Yellowstone and said, look at this. <laughs> Nothing. Park, yeah. Parks yeah. closed. You can't go to a park for a Moose few days. Moose should have told you out front. Uh, wasn't there one recently where they closed the World War II memorial? Didn't that happen? Yeah. Where some yeah. Veterans... Remember they tried to close Mount Vernon and Mount Vernon was privately run and they yes, said, what are you doing? That's right. So, so, I mean, I just think it's all just it, it's uh, it's Washington's game. The reporters in that town pay attention to it because it's sport for them. But this June 1st deadline, does it holds no drama for me. Let me just give you an idea of what's happening locally. In Nassau County, they're having a rally for the Marine vet, Danny Penny, who's uh, – people want to make this a racial incident. I think he acted heroically. Sadly, he's going to go to a grand jury and become politicized, which it already has. So there's a rally for him. It doesn't – Brad 
Uh, Blakeman's brother, Bruce Blakeman, is Nassau County executive, and they're just showing up to show some support. The Marines did not rally behind him. I thought they would um, I, in some formal way, but uh, we'll see. Uh, so, so this whole moving money around and what have you, what's the most interesting time right now is that Joe Biden already had to back off his original statement. What did he say? I'm getting a clean debt ceiling. That's Absolutely. it. I will not do it. He's already had to yes. go back on his words because he's going to have to digest some cuts. But when you talk about what's the downside, here's the downside. Congresswoman uh, Pramila Jayapal, this is what she said yesterday, cut 24. I think there would be a huge backlash from our entire uh, House Democratic you know, caucus, certainly the progressives, but also in the streets. You know, I mean, I think that this is it's important that we don't take steps back from the very strong agenda that the president himself shepherded and led over the last two years. Rally in the streets for a debt ceiling raise, some cuts, repurposing and little maybe 20,000 less IRS agents. I think it's I think it's ridiculous. I think I, I think what she's talking about the, the the idea that you can't cut anything. We have thirty one trillion dollars in debt, and I saw you do a piece this morning on the defense spending, right? Right. And how it's become such a monopoly the defense contractors that they're just charging through the roof rates, right? Which happens in every aspect of government, by the way. Gouging. Right? Absolutely. So. The idea that we've lost all sense of fiscal responsibility, that we can't take care of people with the money that is out there. Look at what happens in the public education system, where you flood dollars into the most difficult, beleaguered urban school systems. They get more money. It it doesn't get fixed. Money does not fix problems. Right. Um, obviously it takes money to get things done, but until we, we kind of get our, until someone gets serious about this, um, you know, can I just point this, something out, Bill, before be, you talk? No, I'm sorry. Martha has no reason. Martha has no reason to watch me in the morning. Uh-huh. She could be sleeping. <laughs> she points out my segment in the morning. You have never pointed out a segment. What? Are you, are I, you, are I you like high? Watching, uh, yeah, we, she I should be in bed at that time. How many times have I said? I'm usually I, working out while you're on. Oh, uh, really? <laughs> I never miss the A the A segment. Oh, you like the A blocks? <laughs> the A block at 6 a.m. Okay, she was talking about a B block. Have I, have I ever... Wouldn't Come mind on. you. If I, you I watched the B believe- block, would it? Would it I happen? missed the A block. I guess that was the B block. I, I was sleeping. I, I don't know if they get an, they negotiate an extension to the fall and then come back and do it again, or if they get it until next year and come back and do it again, or they push it past the election. I think this is one of the few, if not only, times Republicans in the House majority will get a chance at reducing spending. Absolutely. What, what he did right and now. keeping that coalition together was nothing short of a miracle. And, and Brian, your point should should get more attention, actually, because and I pointed this out because it happened live on the show when he spoke in Japan, the president. He said, we will never negotiate. Right. And then all of a sudden it was like, OK, we're open to talking. Right. And, and it got he, almost no, no attention. I mean, that he, was the first huge concession. Isn't that weird? Uh, it's bizarre because it's uh, everyone wants to know who is leverage. Who's got leverage? Why? I, a couple of things. With all his wisdom at 82, how did he not realize, I got a G7, it's really important. I got two important visits, Australia and New Guinea. Yeah. I did not know the importance of it. Josh Rogan came on, mm-hmm. read a col- he wrote the column and then came on and talked about it. New Guinea, they had given everybody a holiday. They were going to be yes. open up a base and it's so close to China, yes. mil- strategically. Big deal. Yep. They kissed it. Yeah. How did he not say, hey, guys, I, I don't want this trip cut short. This is an important trip. I can't embarrass me by showing we're going to fail, fail to raise the debt ceiling. That's going to look like we're failing a, 
we're uh, failures when it comes to credit. And China's watching everything we do. Let's not give them a narrative. How could they not have, next thing you know, an 82-year-old guy is flying back another 6,000 miles Mm -hmm. to go negotiate with a guy half his age? Yeah. 80. 80. I would argue go PNG, and I would argue go to Australia. Absolutely. You can do this stuff on telephone. Come on. Zoom Absolutely. It. No, I think, you know, it, look, it makes it look like you just want to get home early because uh, and that's even more offensive to Papua New Guinea and Australia, because when he got home, there was no deal. So Why you know, have, it yeah, just makes it do? look like you want to get home early. There was a moment when he arrived there running down those concrete stairs it was a little scary. with no railing. And it's, con- it's concrete, did not fall, caught himself. You think, think yeah. about. If that happens, that's the only thing you remember from this trip. They're talking about China. They're talking about North Korea. These are big, important issues. I support the fact that he went, but I think it, I, I think the trip should have been completed. How, how about this? Uh, you're trying to – everybody said it two months ago. We're going to try to build up Kamala Harris. She's been unfairly criticized. If you want to give her a legitimate prestige, you put her into these negotiations and have them say, i got to finish up this trip. It's extremely important. China's our number one enemy. I'm going to give the baton they, to the I, vice president. What was the last time they expressed Great com- idea. confidence in Zero. Them. But they, they're trying to build her up, and here's why, for self-preservation purposes. So every time you say you think I'm a little old, I got the heir apparent here. Absolutely. Don't and worry I think when he it. said, I'm, I'm, when he ran, he said, I'm, I'm, I want to build a bridge, right, to the next. And I think at that point, it's fair to say that they might have assumed that it would just be one term and build that bridge, have a super vice president, and then campaign like crazy for that person in the second term. But that is not, it's no longer an option now. Her numbers are terrible, and they can't fall back on that. So he has to run again. He does, uh, unless all the wheels come off, and then it's, uh, it's going to be the governor of Illinois. It's going to be the governor of uh, Florida, excuse me, California, California. and then it's going to be – I don't know why. I don't, I it could can't, happen. The governor, a Democrat, that I think has the most promise is the governor of Kentucky. I mean, I can't do his unauthorized biography, but what I've seen is he seems to be winning over some moderates in that state. Yeah, yeah you're right about that. And Bashir, like, Bashir, yeah, I Andy think Bashir. he's done a pretty good job. Right, he's, he's saying idiotic things like Gavin Newsom is about and doing reparations yeah. councils and then falling flat on his face. Listen, when he's guys, I, I think unless something significant happens, I, I, I think, you know, we know the card they're going to play. I, I think the action is on the Republican side. This, I mean, this, oh, yeah. this is going to be... This is going to be a doozy. You're, you're going to have, as of yesterday, coming out of Super Tuesday, which I, okay, for the purpose of this conversation, let's say DeSantis wins one of the early first, uh, first four states. You would have to. Right? In order to stay alive. Yeah. You're right about that. So he comes out of Super Tuesday and he's flying into Manhattan. You saw what happened when he came here last time. Right? All the streets are blocked mm-hmm. off. Lower Manhattan's yeah. closed down. And and he's told that he has a peer for this trial in mid-March. In between all these primaries, and, and, Florida? And, and I think a lot of Democrats would probably think this is going to hurt him. I, I don't know. I think you could take the other side of that argument. Especially when it comes to Republicans looking at what he's up against. And, and Bill, the thing is, too, is who is you, and I have to be reminded of this. You probably don't. And that is, while you say Mar-a-Lago is so terrible and we got to indict him, and while not saying a word about Joe Biden and Mike Pence, they took the same documents. There's no leak on their investigation. There's nothing going on. Then you have people in the past taking back documents, people that popped up. Maybe he did. Maybe he's the most egregious. They have more examples. But it's the same topic. 
And then you're going to tell me that what's come out now in the Durham report, if you take the time to read it, doesn't back up his narrative that he's been unfairly targeted. And then Mike Burrell, oh, yeah, I was the one who got rounded up. Why did you round up those 51 intel experts? Because I wanted to help Joe Biden in the debate. So everything Trump was saying, he's got some substance behind it now. He absolutely does. And and that's going to solidify his base. He has a huge lead right now, unless something... There's a real catalyst. I don't see that changing. Um, but we'll see because you've got DeSantis in the race. You've got a lot of attention on Tim Scott in the past few days as well. And, you know, I, I mean, the, the, the former president, I think the things that he's up against fuel his support. I don't think that it takes away from it. you got your show coming up at 3. Yep. You want people to watch. We do. Um, we're obviously going to be previewing the DeSantis uh, announcement, which is going to come at six o'clock tonight. We're going to talk to Ronna McDaniel, Kimberly Strassel, Brett Baer. We've got a great lineup uh, looking ahead to that. And we'll be watching this live unfolding debt ceiling issue as well, because McCarthy and the president are going to meet again. I just saw that Kevin McCarthy said it took 97 days for the president to sit down with me. So he's putting the focus on the delay and why we're up against this deadline on the White House. Yes. And he just said, Joe Biden, as with Senator Biden, agreed to have a work requirement with uh, with food stamps. Sure he did. Or with welfare. What's uh, what's the problem now? Yep. And he also talked about going to 2022 spending levels. What's the problem now? So the problem is he passed a whole bunch of stuff in 2022 uh, that really screwed up our debt, but was uh, forward on their agenda. All right, when we come back, we'll bring you the latest on the debt ceiling and find out what Bill Hemmer's doing over the weekend. Mm-hmm. More to know. Want even more, Brian? Download the podcast at com. Every episode, exclusive interviews on demand. More of Kilmeade coming up. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. All right, we're back. Just looking right now, Bill Hemmer and Martha McCallum at the Real Clear Politics average. Donald Trump with 56% of the vote. Governor DeSantis with 19.4. Then Mike Pence with 5.6. Uh, Nikki Haley with 4.3. Vivek at 3.6. Senator Scott at 1.8. When DeSantis gets in, I think the gap closes immediately because you can't say, well, wait until they start attacking him. Nikki Haley attacked him already. Yes, she did. Saying he's a... He's a replica of Donald Trump. Yeah, she put out a whole ad with, um, you know, comparing the things that they've said that are similar. I, I think that's been Nikki Haley's tactic. She, you know, she's trying to be be bold and be on the attack. I think, how it works. I think we're headed for some good action. Uh, my as, as like following this, I hope it goes on for a while because I think it's a very interesting story. And it's interesting because these people have to tell us how their policies would be different from when Donald Trump was in the White House. And they I, all seem to be very happy with what he was doing then. What's the difference now? That you're, you're, I agree. Uh, that is the question to press all of them on. But the other, you know, to me, I think the American people benefit from a process that allows them all to have some time up on that stage and in front of them because they have an enormous decision to make. So I, I, I hope that they, I hope there's a process. Yeah. I hope there's a, the, there, the there's Clinton, a battle. The Clinton-Obama battle of 2008 Classic. was... Epic. Epic. For everybody. Yeah. Uh, and I just love SNL, who clearly, t- by the way, the Democrats took a side. They really wanted Obama to win pretty clearly. Do you remember where SNL did that skit that Hillary was complaining that she got all the hard questions on the debates? <laughs> That's right. And then when they did the skit and they said, uh, Senator Obama, <laughs> yeah. 
Can I get you a pillow? Can I get you a pillow? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love that. Uh, and one of the questions was, can you pronounce? Yeah, uh, can you pronounce uh, the name of the new Russian leader? And he's like, Mem something. And he goes, Medvedev. Senator Obama, you can try it now. He goes, Medvedev. <laughs> so I just said to myself, they, that was one who was fun. It was yeah. fun. But I, I, right. I just, I just, I just think that Governor Christie's going to get in. I think Mike Pence is going to get in. I'm not so sure about Sununu anymore. Yeah, he said he's at 61 percent. He, you know, I think Christie hopes he can play in New Hampshire to some extent. But just thinking back to Obama and and Clinton, um, I remember Michelle Obama said, if we don't win Iowa, we have to pack up and go home. And I think that's true for DeSantis this time around. Right on. Okay. And he won Iowa. He won Iowa. And there was a miracle in Iowa. Yes. Uh, And then it was it was a long battle and Mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton still not over it. And then really not over. She got to be secretary of state. Yeah, that's true. And then Joe Biden was told to step aside as Hillary Clinton got to be the next nominee. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.